Well, it's so good to see you all this morning as we are continuing in our uh, series of The Way, Living Like a Saint, kind of a spin that we're doing this year talking about stewardship. And I just loved, thank you, Daryl. It's like, it's like we, we plan this together. It's like the Holy Spirit is at work. The faithfulness of God, your goodness is running after is running after me. All my life, you have been faithful. All of my life, you've been so, so good. Every breath I will sing of the goodness of God. Here I am. I've that really, that song that really just captures really what we've been trying to talk about this series as we think about living our lives as an offering, a holy and living sacrifice in response to what God has first done for us. God's love, God's goodness. You know, and sometimes it doesn't always feel like God's goodness is with us. Um, but when we look back and when we reflect on, on how God has been faithful or what we've been through and how God has been with us, we can say, your goodness is running after me. All of my life you have been faithful. And so that's what we've been doing this series, just thinking about what it means to offer our lives all that we have in response to what God has done for us. And, and we've been kind of been in conversation with a few saints each week of these people who have figured out a way to live their life as an offering. And being a part of this communion of saints, their witness and their lives and their stories, they still inform us and teach us still today. These people who have figured out a way to offer their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their, ser- their service and their witness, all for the glory of God. And we still tell their stories today. So in this series, the first week, we talked about Sarah Crosby and the way of necessity of how she offered her gifts and what she could in the moment out of necessity. There was a need for someone to hear a word of, from God. And, and so she responded. And, and even though she wasn't quite permitted as a female to preach, she did it anyways out of necessity for the hundreds who had come to gather in her home. And then last week we talked about the way of poverty. Really at the root of that though, the the way of surrender. St. Francis of Assisi who surrendered his wealth and, and surrendered all that he had to live a simple life and to bless the poor. Because at the root of all that was not just about your material possessions and your wealth, but your greed, surrendering the the inner the in things, the the inside things, surrendering that greed that that we sometimes hold on to for comfort for security for assurance for control at the heart of that not just a way of poverty but is a way of surrender and so this week we are going to talk about another one a third way of living like a saint and it may be pretty obvious but it's simply the way of generosity the way of generosity And it felt like a good part two to what we had started talking about last week because, of course, the natural follow-up to a way of surrender is is then to offer what we have in our lives in generosity. Last week I I said almsgiving is the most effective anecdote to greed. (laughs) The way that we can kind of surrender this and our obsession and attachment with our things that we sometimes cling to. You think of like this posture of keep and hoard in scarcity, I don't have enough, so I'm just going to sit here on what I do have. We surrender that. What Jesus invites us into is this, this way of surrender, of, of releasing control a bit over what we have, of realizing it's all from God anyways. We talked about that last week, all that we have. 
We have this idea of possession that we've earned this, we've worked hard for this, this is mine, and that can shut us off from the needs of our neighbor and also our deep need for God. And so Jesus invites us into this way of surrender where we sort of take, you know, release that posture of keep and have in mind into this posture of generosity and compassion, answering the needs of our neighbors. And also that's, that's really a way of freedom. How much more freeing is it to live our lives open to the needs of our neighbors with a deep sense of our divine need for God? And of course, we can do this in response always, in response first to God's great love and goodness and even generosity to us. So the passage of scripture that I'm going to share with you this morning may be a little bit of a different one. We don't often teach on Psalms. It's not something I often do. And yet I think this psalm that I'm going to read with you and, and over you, is, is a, it captures sort of this great pattern that we're going for in this series, this pattern of our lives that we remember and acknowledge the faithfulness and the goodness of God and then respond with our lives, with our praise, with our thanksgiving, with our generosity, with our love, all because God first loved us. So I'm going to read for us this morning a Psalm 65. It's only 13 verses, so one of the shorter ones. We're going to read it all. It's going to be great. Psalm 65, hear this word from the Lord. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who answered prayer, to you all flesh shall come. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. You are the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. By your strength you establish the mountains. You are girded with might. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Those who live at earth's farthest bounds are awed by your signs. You make the gateways of the morning and the evening shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide the people with grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, set, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with richness. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann that I've shared with you before. And he has lots of studies and a whole book on the Psalms. And we know there are lots of different types of Psalms that you can sort of categorize. There are individual Psalms. There are communal Psalms. There are songs Psalms of praise and thanksgiving, psalms of lament, all kinds of different prayers and types that we can kind of classify. But in general, Walter Brueggemann says that there are really three types, that all these different types 
of Psalms can fit into, three sort of larger categories. And they kind of mark different phases in our place of faith, different stages, if you will. In our life of faith, and I've shared this with you before, there might be a place of orientation when everything makes sense in our lives. That's nice, huh? I don't know how often we feel like we're in a place of orientation. That would be an interesting question. <laughs> There's a place of disorientation when we feel we have sunk into the pit. There's a place of new orientation, phases of our life, relationship with God, when we realize that God has lifted us out of the pit and we are in a new place full of gratitude and awareness about our lives and our God. And so basically what Walter Brueggemann is saying is that each of the Psalms could fit into one of these different types that can respond to a phase that we feel like we are in in our personal lives. There are Psalms then of orientation when the world feels well-ordered and reliable, when you feel like things are going great. There are psalms of disorientation, words and songs and, and prayers that we can lean on for those times when we experience the brokenness of life. When everything seems chaotic, there are psalms of lament and penitential psalms and communal lament psalms when things are not right. And then there are psalms that can be provided for us in those periods of new orientation. And he calls them psalms of reorientation. For those times when God's grace fills us with thanks and wonder, when we have been restored, when we realize God's goodness and grace and salvation for us, and we respond with praise and thanksgiving. These could be psalms of thanksgiving. These could be Zion psalms. These could be covenant renewal psalms. There are royal or enthronement psalms. There are ones that were spoken on pilgrimage on the way to Jerusalem and sung as the people traveled to worship. These are reorientation psalms. And I would almost argue that that's really the place where we might find ourselves living the most in terms of always being aware of God's faithfulness for us and to us first. Remembering that we have been restored and redeemed and offering our praise and thanksgiving in response because we have been redeemed. Those moments that make us go, wow, how generous is God to provide for all that we have? How wonderful, how faithful, how merciful, how holy. And that's really the pattern that we see Psalm 65 take. We would classify that as a reorientation psalm because it starts with all of these reasons for why God deserves praise. All of these things that God has first done. In the beginning of the psalm, it says, we praise God for answering prayer, for forgiving iniquities, for dwelling close to us. We praise God for these awesome deeds of deliverance and salvation. And then in verses 6 to 8, it sort of praises God for God's power and might. Let's see if I can go back to it. Nope. Can you go back just a few slides, Debbie? Would you mind? To verses 6 through 8. Wizard back there, thank you very much. By your strength you establish the mountains, you are girded with might, you silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. Those who live at earth's farthest bounds are awed by your signs. So I read this, and I thought this was just beautiful imagery for what the people at the time thought about God's power and might. 
the, the Hebrews of this time would have thought the sky, can you imagine this with me, this is kind of cool, thought experiment, they would have thought the sky was sort of this like solid, clear dome. It was rounded, of course clear, translucent, but sort of put in place by God to hold back the waters of chaos. The waters of chaos from creation, from kind of referenced in the story of Job. Anyways, there's, there was this dome, and it was held in place by the mountains. But you can imagine sort of reasonably thinking this. If you look out at the horizon, and it's in a mountainous region, you would think that that's holding up the sky. <laughs> this sort of large dome in place, extreme ends of the earth. They're held up by mountains. And then, of course, this dome had windows or floodgates that opened by God in order to make it rain or snow to nourish the earth. And so there was this understanding then, it even moves to it at the end of this psalm, this understanding that God is Lord over creation. God has control over these chaotic waters. God provides. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. You provide the people with grain. You're thanking God for for being God and Lord over the harvest, providing the people with grain, for crowning the year with your bounty, it says. The pastures of your wilderness overflow, in verse 12. All of this leading up to that last line, which I kind of think is like the final sort of like hurrah. They shout and sing together for joy. You can see this movement of reflecting back, of praising God at the beginning of the psalm for God's forgiveness, for God being near and the time of being in the pit, for how God has provided, and then praising God, joining with the whole, all of creation to praise God for how God provides. This is the pattern. This is the move that we respond with offering our whole selves, and our whole lives. Not just love, not just God's goodness, but what I'm arguing here is what this really captures is another way of thinking about, too, the generosity of God. It kind of covers all that God does for us. How generous is God for loving us, for forgiving us, for being with us, for providing for us, We join with all of creation to sing praise to our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, our creator. We offer all that we have. So when we think about offering ourselves, our prayers, our presence, our our, uh, gifts, our service, our witness, of course the way of generosity is a way that that we're going to talk about in a stewardship campaign. And what I want you to hear is that this pattern of response can also be in response to the generosity of God. The generosity of God. Offering all that we have. So each week I've shared with you a story of a different saint. Uh, And this one, you know, you could really just sort of draw a name out of a hat of one of the saints. And you'd have a really great example of someone who patterned their life in generosity, of they had surrendered to that point of trusting in God and then given, given of themselves and of their resources very generously. You could really just kind of blindly choose one. But I have one in mind that I thought would be kind of fun 
as we near the season of Advent. This is also a special request from Daryl Pittman. I'm not sure if he remembers that, but he thought it would be really, really fun to tell the story of the original, the legend, the story of St. Nicholas of Myra. I, I'm almost, I'll have you come out in just a second. Micah's gonna be, she's gonna punch somebody for me in just a minute. <laughs> it's part of the story. It's part of the story, don't worry. Did you all know that it's 63 days till Christmas? Are you ready? Nope, I'm not. But maybe if we chose to celebrate it a little bit more like St. Nicholas and less like Santa Claus, because Christmas is not our birthday. Did you know that? What? Christmas is not my birthday. Here we go. There he is. Look at that. St. Nicholas, traditionally we think born around March 270, died December 6, 343. December 6th is his feast day. And there are people in different parts, Christians in different parts of the world that still celebrate the feast day of St. Nicholas. He was a bishop, y'all. Like This is a, like a legit leader in the church, bishop. Here's what we know a little bit about him. An early Christian bishop of Greek descent from the, the city of Myra in Asia Minor, that's kind of modern-day Turkey, lived during the time of the Roman Empire. Because of the many miracles attributed to his intercession, he's also known as Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Kind of cool. Okay, so he was raised by wealthy parents who raised him to be a devout Christian, but they actually died in an epidemic when he was very young. And so obeying Jesus' words as a young adult to sell what you own and give the money to the poor, Nicholas actually used his whole inheritance to assist the needy, the sick, and the suffering. He dedicated his life to serving God and was made bishop while still a very young man. Bishop Nicholas became known throughout the land for his generosity to those in need, his love for children, and his concern for sailors and ships kind of funny to be known by those three things but there are legends there are stories that kind of go along with each of these his generosity to those in need and this is where we get some of our traditions of the feast of saint nicholas there's one story told about him that tells of a poor man in his village who had three daughters and because this poor man did not have enough money to provide a dowry it meant that his daughters would not be married and that they would probably never marry and therefore be sold into slavery. And so in order to provide and to protect this family um, without dowries, mysteriously on three different occasions, the story goes a bag of gold appeared in their home on three different occasions, each time providing for one of these daughters' dowries. The bags of gold were said to have been tossed through an open window and they are said to have landed in stockings or shoes that were left before the fire to dry. So this led to the custom of children hanging their stockings or putting out shoes on the feast day of St. Nicholas, eagerly awaiting gifts from St. Nicholas. So sometimes the story could be told uh, with gold balls instead of bags of gold to kind of represent. And today... Today, sometimes it's represented with oranges. So I'm going to go two slides. This is like still kids will put out on the night before the feast day of St. Nicholas. I'm getting some frowns. You're like, 
I did not make this up. Some of y'all know this. They, kids still would put out shoes or stockings, and they receive peppermint crooks, like peppermint candy canes. That represents the bishop's crook. That represents St. Nicholas. Maybe some coins, but specifically oranges. I don't know. If I was a kid, I'd be like, this isn't gold. This is an orange. <laughs> I was expecting gold. <laughs> but it's a tradition to remember the generosity of St. Nicholas. You can kind of see how we've really morphed this into Santa Claus in kind of weird ways. So that's one story. There's another story. Um, Debbie, if you go back one slide. There's another story about St. Nicholas returning by sea from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and there was a mighty storm that threatened to wreck the ship, and it was Nicholas who prayed, and the storm was calmed. Uh, and so the terrified sailors were amazed that the winds and waves were suddenly calmed, and so he became known as the patron saint of sailors and voyagers. All right, this is your spot, Micah. Are you ready? There's even an early list of church leaders who attended the first council of Nicaea in 325. That's where we get the Nicene Creed today, kind of one of the earliest creeds from the early church of like our fundamental foundational beliefs as Christians. And what they were really arguing about in the council of Nicaea was how Jesus could be both fully God and fully human. And like, whoa, like lots of language around that, lots of confusion, looking at scripture, and their, their issues broke out. I mean, church schism, they get together for this council, and they try to hash out this Nicene Creed. We call it that because the council was in Nicaea in 325. So legend has it that St. Nicholas was there, bishop at the time. He was there. But he was actually temporarily defrocked and imprisoned during the council for punching the heretic Arius. Micah just learned about this at school last week in her church history class. So Arius, known as sort of the Arian way that wasn't sort of fully affirming the divinity of Christ, heretical, and St. Nick apparently slapped him in the face. That's what legend claims. I'm not sure how that fits with generosity. I just felt like I needed you to know that. Okay, so the last story is <laughs> very generous with his passion and conviction for the divinity of Christ. But we are pacifists, okay? We, uh, yeah, choosing the way of peace, that's next week, the way of peace. So other stories tell Nicholas saving people from famine, sparing the lives of those innocently accused, and much more. He did many kind and generous deeds. Here's the catch, but he did them in secret. He often did them in secret, expecting nothing in return. Within a century of his death, he was celebrated as a saint. Today, he is venerated in the East as a miracle worker, and in the West, uh, as patron of a great variety of persons, some of them I've already listed, like children, travelers, bankers, scholars, orphans, laborers, merchants, maidens, the wrongfully accused even. He was said to have... Um, really sort of advocated on behalf of people who were wrongly accused for theft and were about to be put to death. He stood in and advocated for them, so he became known as the patron saint of those wrongfully accused. And even thieves and murderers. 
Uh, so he is known as a friend and protector of all in trouble or need. That's a, that's a pretty cool legacy, huh? He is known as the friend and protector of all in trouble or need. Giving in secret without praise or recognition. Generous, not just with his own finances and his own inheritance, but with his whole life. And here's what I think we can take from this this morning, is that it seems as though St. Nicholas saw an opportunity to help anywhere he could. Like that list goes on and on and on. I actually summarized it a little bit and put some groups together. In every aspect of his life, in every place that he went, he saw an opportunity to help those in need. It's not just with your finances, but living your life in this sort of holistic way as a way of generosity, always looking for opportunities. That requires us to surrender a bit, like we talked about last week. That requires us to kind of open our posture just a little bit away from this sort of greed and busyness, and it's all about me, it's all up to me, it's all dependent on me, to this posture of surrender and faith and trust in a God who will provide for you so that we can be a little bit more generous with our time and our talents, our gifts and our resources with those around us. That is the better way that Christ invites us into. And that is the way that we've seen so many saints before us choose to live their lives. A way of generosity, a way of compassion, a way of openness to the needs of our neighbors around us. To be remembered and known as a friend and protector of all in trouble or need. Matthew 6 says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. But when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. But truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I thought this scripture very well summarized the generosity of St. Nicholas, who chose not to, maybe doesn't even like that we still celebrate him today, (laughs) but to gave so much and did so much in secret as a way of generosity, to not receive the recognition or anything in return, but all for the glory of God and for the love of of his neighbors. So here as a church, what we've been talking about this series is how we respond together as a church family, as we commit here with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness, and not just as something that we feel we're obligated to do, as something that we check a box to do, but as a spiritual discipline, offering our whole lives as a holy and living sacrifice, and realizing and experiencing that that actual move of surrender it's, it's a way of experiencing God's grace, of growing in trust and, and faithfulness, but that, that move transforms us, right? We, we can grow in our faith and in our love, our love for God and our love for others by giving through ways of necessity and ways of surrender and ways of generosity. This is a whole life that we're talking about. 
not just something we may check a box and do every couple of weeks or once a month or however. So I've been inviting you each week to consider that commitment, to consider that response of how we as a community together can respond to what God has done for us. God's goodness, God's provision, God's faithfulness, God's generosity. And in response, I invite you to join, to join the revolution and the mission that we are on, you know, set out to do, to join Jesus and the revolution of transforming lives through teaching and service. Believing that together we grow in love of God and love of our neighbor because of the life we live together here. And knowing that we need each other. There is a way of necessity here. There's a challenge to surrender here. And there's a challenge to step deeper into our faith and trust in God as we offer what we have in a way of generosity. You should have gotten it in the mail, but also this week we have more. uh, We've been passing these out each week of a way for you to respond in our stewardship campaign for this year as we plan for, you know, what we hope 2023 will look like in joint inviting you to join the revolution by saying, I'm going to commit to supporting this church and the mission that we are doing here through our prayers, our presence, our service, our gifts, and our witness. If you haven't yet turned yours in or responded yet, we've got some blank ones here. Uh, I invite you to do that um, because we truly do believe that we are better together, that this way of faith calls us into this community, that we can sharpen one another and challenge one another and grow together with this move of surrender and generosity. So if you haven't picked one up, there's one out front. And I invite you in this time now when we pray and respond and celebrate communion to consider ways that God might be calling you to step out in faith just a little bit more through the way of generosity. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the ways that you provide. We ask that you would speak to our hearts now and give us the courage that we need to respond with our whole lives, every aspect, because we know that you are worthy, that you are good, and that you will provide. And we know that we can join with all the company of heaven and all of creation as we praise your name and trust, trust in you and trust in your provision. So God, speak to our hearts now and give us the courage and the clarity we need. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.